Hi, everybody. My name is Pat, and I am a very grateful recovering member of Al-Anon. And um, I feel real safe with you, so do you care if I take these high heels off? <laughs> How do people do that? But I, I suited up. I showed up. Okay. Um, <laughs> my serenity date is May the 8th of 1982, and my home group is the Hope On Al-Anon Family Group in Middletown, Indiana. Um, we're real, real fortunate in our area uh, around Anderson, Indiana, that we had a wonderful, wonderful lady who since passed on that brought Al-Anon to our area in 1954. So we have had meetings continuous in our area since I, the year I was born. So I thank her. Thank you, Frances, wherever you are. I'm sure she's up there. <laughs> watching us. Um, I'd like to thank the committee uh, and everyone responsible for asking me to come, especially Peggy. Thank you. I've talked to you several times. And Alanson, right? Thank you. My husband and I listened to her name I know seven times on our recorder going, what was that? What was that? <laughs> Play it again, honey. What was that? Okay. And she had a hoarseness in her throat when she called me, so I just kept listening to it over and over. But thank you, thank you very much for this beautiful, beautiful conference area and the invitation. Appreciate it. Um, yes, I did bring my own cheering section and my own comfort section and my own uh, boosting section. So you know, when you travel, you do what you need to do for yourself. So that's, that's all my preliminaries. Um, I was brought to this fellowship by my very, very best friend. I was living in a situation in my home, and I was married to a man that drank a lot. And I didn't know how to cope with it. She was one of the very few people in my life that knew what was going in, on inside my home. And she called me up one night, and she says, I think I went to a meeting tonight that might help you. It's for families and friends of alcoholics. She had been asked to that meeting because she had been raised in an alcoholic home. I was not raised in an alcoholic home. I think I am the lone person here who was not raised in an alcoholic home. For years in this program, I would introduce you as, my name is Pat and I'm, I had a happy childhood. I, <laughs> I mean, where else on earth, you know, are you kind of like embarrassed that, you know, your parents were really kind and lovely and wonderful. And, I'm sorry, you know. But it was. I mean, my dad kind of looked like Ward Cleaver, you know. He, he wore a business suit and came home. My mom had a little shirt weight dresses and pearls and wore Jackie Kennedy little pillbox hat to church on Sunday. And I mean, that's what my life was in the 50s and 60s. And I, the TV shows on TV reflected what was going on in my life. Please tell me by a show of hands that there is someone else in this room. That okay, yeah, I'm here for you, baby. I am here for you. Okay. <laughs> because that was what was going on in my house. It did look like that. Well, what happens is, you know, you grow up thinking everybody's home is like that because it was Ozzy and Harriet, and it, my father did know best. And... You know, it just was that way. I enjoyed my childhood. I was, I had fun. I had a fun adolescence. Um, I was the youngest of two children, and uh, growing up, um, we had absolutely no alcohol in my home. None whatsoever. 
Um, I was married, or I was, had a mother that uh, probably said on her wedding night, lips that touch liquor will never touch mine, and she believed it. You know, she carried it all the way to her grave. I'm sure she never drank. Um, my dad came from a very solid Christian. His mother and his aunts all belonged to the WCTU. Does anyone here know what the WCTU is? That's the Women's Christian Temperance Unit, okay? And when I was little, uh, I was even invited to meetings where they would give children little speeches about the evils of drink. And you would stand up in someone's home and give your little speech about the evils of drink, and you won little badges and little medals for it. And I mean, I have newspaper clippings from me when I was eight or nine winning these little medals, you know, from the WCTU. <laughs> what a long way I've come. Um, <laughs> giving speeches in a different form about alcoholism. But anyway, that was what I had growing up. Um, when I got into high school, I had a happy childhood. I had a happy adolescence. I was in a lot of stuff. When I graduated high school, I decided I wanted to go two states away to Bible college. My mother, I was the youngest of two children, and my mother had this huge problem with emptiness syndrome. If I mean, if you look that up in a dictionary, my mother's picture would be right beside it. She did not want me to go far away. She did not want me to go to Tennessee. That was entirely too far. And I really kind of talked my dad into it one summer, and I left and went to college. Well, I know there's people who know me now who can't believe I went to Bible college, but I did. I went to Bible college. So... Uh, I was there about three or four months uh, at Christmas time. My dad came down to where I was uh, at my dormitory, and he came in. We were getting ready to go home for Christmas break, and he said, Pat, I really need you to come home with me. Um, we can't afford this private tuition, a couple states with me, with us. Then I'll send you to what school you want to go to locally, and we'll get you a little used car, and you can come home with us. And I, my dad had never asked me to do something between two and of course. I said, yes, yes, I'll come home. I didn't find out until many, many years later that that wasn't quite the situation, that my mother just wanted me at home. She didn't like me two states away, and she was going to watch what I was doing. You didn't get that memo about the cell phone, did you, honey? <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so I came home and uh, went to nurse's training. And... It was 1973 by that time, and my friends were at state and local colleges, and buddy, I found out all about partying, and pot, and friends, and parties. I don't think that's what my mother had in mind when she told me to come home, but that's what I found out about. And in that period of time in my house, it did not occur to me that I could have just got a job and got an apartment and moved out on my own. I thought that you had to get married and leave, because that's what you did in my house. Until you got married, then you were under your parents' thumb. So I just married the first guy that asked, and I left. So I could be my own person and live my own life. And I really wasn't married to him very long, six or seven months, because he was boring and, you know, really didn't have much going for him. And he worked second shift, and I was going to school during the day, and I never saw him anyway, so I didn't care. I don't think I'd recognize him today if he passed me on the street. I really don't. 
But the guy that attracted me while I was still married to this, who came into a party just underneath the door frame, walked in and said, hi. That guy, I remember. <laughs> and I can hardly forget what he looks like because my oldest boy looks exactly like him. Are you with me on this? Okay. But he didn't stay very long at all. And so really before I even signed my divorce papers, he was gone. So within a one-year period of time, I was home, I went to nurse's training, I met the guy I was going to marry, I married him, I fell in love with another man, I left my husband for him, I got pregnant, got divorced, and was living alone by myself with a child. <laughs> Let's wrap this up. I'm trying to hurry, you know. <laughs> okay. To get you to, you know, how <laughs> before I ever even meet, you know, the alcoholic in my life, I've, I've already screwed things up pretty good all on my own. So, when I met the man that qualified me for this program, I was living alone, I was working as a nurse, I had this young four-year-old, three-year-old child at the time, and a mother who wanted a baby, okay? So, I was the last one, remember, empty nest syndrome. She swooped right in on this little baby of mine with this unwed mother who was working all the time and took over. And that was okay by me, really, because I was going to party and have fun and enjoy myself. And, woo, I mean, it's a miracle I am not in the other fellowship, but for the grace of God, truly, but for the grace of God and some genetic little twerk thing in my head. I'm not in the other program because I really had a good time. <laughs> I mean, I have a past to look back on. You know, I I'm a nurse. I work at a doctor's office. I work for a sweet, sweet man. And uh, he's about... 14 years younger than I am, and I've told him, oh, man, you know, I saw the Doobie Brothers when I was, yeah. he said, you saw the Doobie Brothers? I said, well, you know, details are a little fuzzy. <laughs> but I was there. I, <laughs> the Leonard Skinner came around, I said, well, that's not the Leonard Skinner I saw, you know, man, I saw the original one. You did well, yeah, sort of. They're, they're a haze. <laughs> But I had a good time, you know, and of course, what happens when you are an Al-Anon and you're doing that kind of stuff, you eventually hook up with somebody who does belong to the other fellowship, and that's exactly what happened to me. I met this guy, and I thought, oh, great, this is going to be the answer to all my prayers. Um, he's going to make me normal because, oh, of course, you know, now I'm going to be able to get married and, and look like the house that I grew up in. I'm not going to be divorced and embarrassment to my parents anymore as the only person in their whole family that had ever gotten divorced, and it was me. And I'm going to marry this guy, and we're going to live happily ever after, and he's going to adopt my son, and, you know, it's just going to be wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And when we got married and alcoholism walked into my house, I had no idea what it was. I did not recognize it. I had never seen it. So it took me a little while to catch on to maybe that was what was going on. Okay. And, of course, I tried every single thing I could to control the situation. When we read in our literature all the don't do this, I did that. And all the things that do this, we, I didn't do any of that. You know. But I cried and I begged and I pleaded and I drank with him and I poured it out and I drugged with him and I hid the dope and I gained a lot of weight. So 
he wouldn't pay any attention to me, and then I lost a lot of weight, so he wouldn't pay attention to me, or I worked all the time, so we could have the things that we wanted to do, or I didn't work at all, so he'd be forced to go to work and take care of things. You know, whatever it was, that's what I did. I wanted to control somehow this out-of-control situation in my house. And the very last thing I did, trying, trying, trying to come, was I went to church, back to church. But I kept thinking, well, I don't want anything real easy. I, I went to an easy church to begin with, you know, like this little, nice, little Christian church. But they just weren't getting the job done. So, you know, I decided to go to a stricter church. And I kept going to a stricter church. You know, I ended up with, you know, Q-hopping Pentecostals, you know. They were going to lay their hands on him and heal him, somehow fix him, you know. And I don't mean to offend anybody, but that's where my mindset was. You know, I am going to take care of this man. I'm going to fix him. To the point where, you know, I had decided that, I haven't told this story in a while, nobody, I don't think I'm with, has heard this. i got to have one surprise for the people I bring. <laughs> um, I signed us up as uh, sponsors to the youth group. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, if you know me, <laughs> you know, this was many, many years ago before I dealt with teenagers, okay, so I'm still fresh, you know, I'm still new. And I signed us up to uh, be chaperones this, on a weekend for a canoe trip. And I decided, wouldn't that be fun? You know, he kind of liked to camp and go out. And I thought, wouldn't this be fun? I could get him to go with me, and we could be sponsors on this canoe trip for the weekend. And it was going to be an all-day canoe trip, you know, eight hours long on Sugar Creek, all the way down, you know, with these teenagers. And um, uh, <laughs> my qualifier was that uh, he was a uh, binge drinker, you know. He'd go days and weeks and a long time without drinking, no drinking, no drinking, no drinking, no drinking. And then, you know, he'd leave the house and someone else would come home inhabiting his body and say and do weird things like alcoholics do. That's what my life was like. So it was really roller coaster. So anyway, I planned this trip on this weekend. And uh, we're supposed to do it on a Saturday morning. We have to leave the house at 5.30 in the morning, okay? But I've arranged for my, uh, the kids to be gone. And I'm, oh, good, you know, we're going to have this wonderful weekend. And... And he's late getting home from work on Friday evening. And, and the kids are already taken care of. They're gone. And um, yeah, I don't hear from him. And I hear from him. And, and about two hours later, from the time he's supposed to be home, he calls me. He says, oh, he says, I stopped for a drink with the guys. He says, but, you know, I'm just going to have a couple beers. And then I'll be home. And, you know, we're going to have such fun on this canoe trip tomorrow. I just can't wait. We're going to go. And I said, okay, that'll be fine. And that. Time passes and a couple hours go by and I get this second phone call. It's like, I've decided to stay just a little longer. <laughs> but when I get home, we're going to have such a good time on this canoe trip tomorrow. I just can't wait. And I'm going, fine, fine, that'll be wonderful. About midnight he calls and says, I can't make it home for the canoe trip. <laughs> I don't think I can drive, but I'll try to be there in the morning. <laughs> fine. Just fine. So I get up in the morning, and of course no one's there. I shouldn't say got up in the morning. I stayed up all night, okay? Counting cars. Does anybody, did anybody else do that? You sit in a chair by the window, and you think, two more cars, and I'm going to bed, you know? <laughs> 
three more cars and I'm going to bed. If this isn't him... Okay, you could spend a whole night like that, which I, of course, did, drinking coffee and getting nauseous. <laughs> and because I'm such a people pleaser, I had decided that I was going to make tuna fish sandwiches for us to take on this canoe trip the next day, because that was his favorite. <laughs> I hate tuna fish sandwiches. But I was going to make them for him in a little waterproof bag and take him on the canoe trip. So the next morning, of course, he's not there. I'm nauseous. I have been up all night with... I don't know how to say this politely. Um, gastric intestinal problems. <laughs> kind of explosive problems, okay? And I'm getting ready to go on an eight-hour canoe trip with teenagers and tuna fish, <laughs> okay? But I'm really mad and I want him to know because now he's going to come home after I leave. I'm not even going to see the chance to yell at him, you know, when he comes home. So he had bought a case of Olympia beer. That's what he drank in bottles, Oli beer, you know. So I set the case of Oli on the kitchen counter and I pour out every single one of those bottles of Oli and turn them upside down in the case and then put the little cap on top of the bottom of the bottle so he'll know how I feel. <laughs> So he'll know that it wasn't accidental that 24 beers were poured down the sink. <laughs> and I went on the canoe trip with two rather rambunctious 15-year-old boys who hated me. <laughs> and I hated them right back, <laughs> eating my tuna fish, paddling, oh, with gastrointestinal <laughs> problems. <laughs> And they can hear me in the back of the canoe, you know. <laughs> that son of a mother. And they're going, what? And I'm going, oh, the sun is out. And wouldn't your mother be proud? <laughs> but, okay, so that's where I was when my girlfriend called me up and said, I think I went to a meeting that might help you. So... She says, it was Monday night. We had to wait till the next Monday night. We waited till the next Monday night. I went into the room with her on a Monday night. And I know there are people in this program who cannot remember their first Al-Anon meeting. A lot of people can't remember the date. Some people can't remember the month. I've talked to people who can't remember the season it was. Because, you know, in Al-Anon we have something. Now I call it a brownout. Some people call it a whiteout, whatever you term you want to use. In Al-Anon, where everything out here is really fuzzy. I mean, I don't really remember 1981 real clearly because I was doing this. I was looking right here at what was going on in front of me. But I remember that room and I remember walking into it. I remember the lighting in that room. I remember the ladies sitting around that, in that room. And I, when I looked around the table, and we talk about attraction rather than promotion. Ladies attracted me. I wanted what they had. Because I remember vividly hearing for the first time we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. And I thought to myself, thank God. Thank God. Because I've been around people and in prayer meetings and, and with friends and family who wanted to know what I was going to do about him. They wanted to know how I was going to fix him, how we could pray enough and do whatever to fix him. And these weren't, ladies weren't talking about anything like that. 
They were just talking about, does his drinking bother you? And I said, yes, it does. And they said, then you're in the right place. Wonderful. Wonderful. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity? Well, I knew I was crazy. He told me so every day. <laughs> and you know, when you live with active alcoholism, and, and like I say, he was a binge drinker. So he'd go out and uh, come back in and we'd have these horrible evenings and I'd wake up the next day and I'd say, oh my God. I said, what am I going to do? You know, the, the glasses are crashed and the, the front door is broken and the neighbors are upset and the police was called and, and the car is wrecked and what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And he'd look at me in this very straight face and he'd say, I never said that. We never went there. Are you crazy? Well, you know, you hear that for a couple, three years, and you start to think, yes, I must be crazy. <laughs> Made a decision, we're going to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him. That was okay by me. I really, truly have absolutely no mental memory of my life without some type of a higher power. From my earliest childhood, from my mother sitting on my bed, teaching me the 23rd Psalm and the Lord's Prayer, and having some type of a relationship with God, I had some spiritual being in my life, my entire life, from my earliest childhood. I'm so lucky, I'm so fortunate that that was just a given to me. One, two, three, bing, 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 steps one. I got it. We're in. I love this. I go home, I tell my girlfriend, let's go to these meetings. She says, well, I think we have to wait until the next Monday night. And I said, no, we can don't. They handed me something called a schedule. <laughs> I opened it up. I says, what are all these other meetings? And this woman at the meeting says, oh, these are your Al-Anon meetings, and then all these other meetings are meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, no shit, we let them come to our meetings too? <laughs> she said, no, no, no. <laughs> they have their own meetings. They work their own 12 steps. Because, see, I didn't know. I had no idea that Al-Anon was in any way, shape, or form affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. So I was really one up here. You know, I got here for me. How wonderful. How lovely. So my, uh, this lady says, you know, you can go to these meetings. I told my girlfriend, I said, let's go to one of these. I want to see what these guys are all about. Because I was having a little hard time understanding this concept of disease. Because I'd been raised in this Christian home. Because I had all these morality-based things going on in my head. That it was a sin. And, you know, it was willpower. And you could just correct it. So we go to this Open Alcoholics and Nana's meeting one Friday night, and it's a big meeting, big meeting. I'm sitting around the outside edge in chairs, and it's so smoky in there, so smoky. My God, there was only one place smoking at a bar in 1982, and that was an AA meeting. You know, everybody smoked, including me. You know, we all smoked. But as I went around the room, and I listened to these people share their experience, share their emotions, share their feelings, talk about what was really going on in their hearts. My nurse's mind could figure out that if they all had the same symptoms, they must have the same use. And the disease concept, there was just a few things. When I first came here, my husband at that time had absolutely no desire for recovery. Um, and I wanted to go to a lot of meetings. 
I wanted to go to meetings all the time. I wanted as much as you could give me, as fast as you could give it to me. Uh, give me, give me, give me, give me. I was like a sponge. You know, those people that we see now, the newcomers, God, I love them. When they come in and you know it's the look in their eyes. It's like, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me, as fast as you could tell me what it is. That's the way I was when I came in here. I went to a meeting one night. I don't know how you got your sponsor, your first sponsor, but I went to a meeting one night and this lady was uh, sitting at the <laughs> chairman's meetings and she stood up and she says, we're going to talk about sponsorship tonight. She says, who here doesn't have a sponsor? You know, me and a couple other girls raised their hands and the woman says, okay, you take her and you take her and you take her. <laughs> okay. You know, I thought later, you know, this woman needs to work on control, you know. <laughs> But at the time, it was fine. I didn't know any better, you know. And I came to find out that the woman she assigned as my sponsor, was she was her sponsor, and she was just trying to give her a job. Because she'd been there about two years, and she figured, by God, it's time for you to sponsor somebody else. So this poor woman, I was dragging her along. You know, let's learn this. Let's learn this. And, and I did my first fourth step with her. It wasn't all that fearless. It wasn't all that searching. But you know what? I did the very best I could at the time I did it. And we used that old blueprint for progress. My God. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, I, this is my story. It's my opinion. You know, there have been better pieces of literature that we've had in Al-Anon. But okay, I did that blueprint for progress. Every single one. Yes, no, maybe sometimes. You know, page after page after page after page. And I did it really pretty quick. I mean, within the first six months, probably, I was doing a fourth step. You know, let's go. Let's move this on, you know. I, I got to tell you, I went to a meeting a couple years ago. And, you know, I've been here a few days. And this lady comes up to me after the meeting. And she says, oh, I'm, I'm working on my fourth step. And she's with it. I'm, I'm I, I thorough. And, and I'm, I've been doing it now for two years. And... <laughs> And what do you have? Do you have any suggestions at all? And I said, well, you know, maybe you should put perfectionism at the top and move on. You know? <laughs> Just saying, you know. <laughs> don't ask my opinion if you don't want it. You know, I'll give it to you. But anyway, <laughs> back to the first year. So in that first year, there's a couple things that just I, I did that that I can't believe I had the nerve to do, that showed that I was really learning this, I was beginning to tip on it. And it was around the holidays time, it was New Year's Eve. We were going to a New Year's Eve party. Well, he was going to his New Year's Eve party, and I was going to the Al-Anon New Year's Eve party. And we really were having a pretty decent evening getting ready for this, because by now, you know, they've been telling him, don't care what he does, you know, you do what you do, you have to stand up for yourself, blah, 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 you know, and I'm paying attention, yes, 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 I'll do that. So I'm carrying my little crock pot to the car, and, you know, I'm helping him lay out his clothes, of course, because I'm an Al-Anon, lay out his clothes so that he can go to his party, you know, and drink, and, and I hugged him when I got ready to go to the party and I said, took a deep breath and I said, enjoy yourself, have a nice evening, be safe, but if you get yourself into a situation, and he said, okay, and he went in the house and I went to the car and I'm going, yes, 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 I mean, I just couldn't believe it, you know, that I had the courage to say that. A couple months later, we were having this horrible, horrible argument, just fighting, you know, fighting, screaming at each other. I know probably none of you guys ever did that at your house, but, oh, man, you know, we were screaming back and forth, and I was yelling, and it got to the point, you know, in the conversation and in that argument where 
it turns. That, that little sentence that they say, and they look at you and they say, what would you do if I just went and got drunk? And that had always been the one that just made me step back, and I, I, you, and I turned and walked away from the argument. After I'd been in the program a little over a year, he did subscribe. And um, for the next eight years of that marriage, we worked individual. <laughs> There's a lot of things I could tell you about that time, but, you know, you've lived them. Um, if you've been in a situation where you're both trying to work programs, but you're still not really well, you know, it can be unnerving, and there's a lot of things that happen, and, and uh, we'd go to meetings together, and, you know, you fight all the way to the meeting, but then you're real nice and serene and kind while you're there, and then you fight all the way home, you know. We did that, you know, like everybody did. And there's one thing I do want to tell you about before I go any farther, and that's about uh, children, you know. At this point in time, he was always angry because I was going to more meetings. He was, you know, that I, he, I, I would be gone all the time, be gone in the evening, have to get babysitters, whatever. Because I always just thought I was crazier than he was, you know. By now we've got kids, you know, and I'm dealing with the kids. We have his oldest daughter, who's two years older than my son, and then we have a child together. And I need to tell you about this little child we had together. Because about a year and a half after we got married, I decided, oh, good. You know, remember, I'm still in the, oh, this is going to be the perfect marriage syndrome. And I thought uh, I didn't have a very good time with my firstborn. It wasn't a nice situation. And I thought, now that we're married and everything's wonderful, and I'm a nurse, and I found out that he had been a medic in the service, and I told him, I want to have this baby at home. Now, he'd been a medic in the service, but, you know, that was peacetime, and he worked in the pharmacy, so I doubt if it was much help <laughs> in childbirth. But not to be dissuaded, you know. I said, oh, it's going to be wonderful. We're going to have this baby at home. It's going to be so great. He's, the baby's due around Christmas time. I'm taking into these classes, Lamaze classes, how to have your baby at home classes. Um, I'm sterilizing sheets, I'm cleaning everything up in the house, I'm going humming and whistling, you know how it is when you're pregnant, you know? Oh, you, it's like building a boat in your basement. <laughs> isn't this wonderful, isn't this beautiful? And then one day you look around and think, how the hell are we going to get this thing out of here? You know? <laughs> it was like that, okay? We lived in this house that had a basement where the laundry was downstairs. And I remember I'm, I'm, one night I'm taking sterile sheets out, you know, and folding them up and wrapping them and packing. And he comes down and he's sitting on the, on the landing on the stairs while he's looking at me going, Are we really going to do this? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, you know, this has got to be about a month away, you know. About, about Christmas time, he gets so freaked out that he's, you know, he's going to be drinking and he's going to be drunk when this baby is born that he does not drink. He stops drinking at Thanksgiving. I wanted, to, I wanted to say this because just in case there are women here that are still of childbearing age and you haven't tried this to get your husband sober, I wanted you to know this just in case you wanted to use it. Because it worked. Okay. <laughs> did not drink one drop from Thanksgiving until the day after Christmas. We had Cheyenne on Christmas morning at home, and it was a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful time. We, I, I'm good about surrounding myself with friends, you know, and that's what I did. I surrounded myself with loving, kind people, um, gave birth in my best friend's arms in our bed. And, you know, just like a lot of us who are no longer with 
the person that qualified us for this program, you know, there was good things about that marriage. Oh, well, I wouldn't have stayed for 12 years. Okay? But after 12 years of marriage, 8 years of that in sobriety, it came to the point where it just was not working anymore. You know, we had tried every single thing we possibly could, and I was beginning not to feel good about myself, about my home, about my family, about our marriage. We tried marriage counselors. We tried everything. And I heard an Al-Anon lead. And this, this woman, God bless her soul, she's in heaven now, but if any of you have ever heard Blanche, she's alive, okay? I heard Blanche speak, and she said a sentence that forever changed my life, that I repeat at meetings to this day over and over, and she said, it is not important that you like every situation that you are in, but it is important. And I no longer liked myself in that marriage. So we're now we're down to about late 1989, and it's the pits. You know, I mean, it is horrible. It is just horrible. We're heading into December, and I'm thinking, i got to get out of here. I tried to kick me out once, but, you know, sometimes kicking out an alcoholic is really hard. You know, they, they swear they're going to go. They threaten to go, but, you know, they're finally getting rid of them is really hard. It's like a piece of gum on your shoe. You know, they just, you know, they just, they keep coming back. You know, they say they're going to go, but they don't. I'm sorry. That's just my opinion. Anyway, <laughs> so it's December. I really want to be gone, but, you know, we're coming up on Christmas, and it's the kid's birthday, and by now he's, you know, nine years old, and oh my God, you know, I don't want to leave on the kid's birthday. So I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, and I mean, truly, we had tried every single thing we could. I mean, obviously, he's in AA, I'm in Al-Anon, we had joined a group of couples together called Alafam. The kids by that time were in Alateen. If we had had Alapet, we would have sent the dog, okay? <laughs> The marriage just is not working. So about January the 3rd, I go to a meeting with a couple really good friends of mine, very honest with me, very loving. I'm sitting in the back seat. They're in the front seat. I'm whining, bitching, complaining about my lot in life and my crappy marriage, how I want to get out of there. And we get to my house, and the guy driving, who's a lovely man, still alive, turns around to me, and he says, either shut up or get out of there. And I said, you are exactly right. And I walked into the house, and I, I said, I'm leaving you now. And I looked, <laughs> I looked at my little son, and I said, would you like to go with Mommy? And he said, yes, I want to go. Because by this time, the two older kids have already gone. You know, his oldest, uh, well, my oldest boy went back to live with my parents. I mean, you know, <laughs> Disneyland grandparents, I wanted to live there. You know, he'd already gone. His oldest daughter went back to live with her mother. I mean, even in sobriety, she can't swim living with us. So all there is is little Cheyenne. I said, hop in the car, let's go. And we left. And I thought, oh, <sighs> well, now my life is going to be wonderful. And I'm going to be happy, joyous, and free all by myself. And I am never ever, ever going to get married again. <laughs> ever. Ninety days later. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Ninety days later, I meet the man that... <laughs> 
has become the love of my life. And, uh, uh, next January, we will have been married 21 years. So, um, yeah. Uh, this is really strange to say. I know you guys are going to have a hard time believing, but he's an earth person. Uh, but this is the very first time he's me tell my story from a podium. I, he's just, he lived it. He hasn't. Uh, so anyway, it's kind of nice. I love it. Um, so Max, um, we have a really nice little love story that I will tell you sometime. Um, I won't tell you now from the podium, but I will tell you that we dated in high school. We knew each other. I knew his family. I knew from whence he came. We dated in 1969. Um, we have pictures of us, you know, at church camp in 1969. Uh, <laughs> so he was safe. I don't think I would have let anybody else in the door, you know, but he was safe. So I let him in and immediately fell in love with him. And we began a wonderful, wonderful marriage. He had two girls the same ages as my two boys. Um, everybody had a dance partner. You know, we would have kid weekends, you know, where everybody would be at our house and we'd go do all these fun things and go to parks and, you know, mess around and have a good time and had four very, very different children, but they had a really good time together. They all got along. I think the reason they did was because, A, we didn't all live together, you know, 24-7, 365. It was just two weekends a month. Uh, number two, there were boys and girls. My boys are tall and, uh, handsome and his girls were little and cute and my boys wanted little sisters to take care of and his daughters wanted big brothers to take care of them and so it just worked. And for the first several years of our marriage we just had such fun, so much fun. Um, and there came a time uh, about four years into our marriage when I'm uh, doing laundry one day, it's my time, I'm doing laundry one day and I'm pulling sheets off of the bed and the mattress on my son's bed comes apart from the box spring as I'm pulling off the sheets and in between the mattress and the box spring is a half empty bottle of wine. So he's only about 14. And so, you know, being the Al-Anon that I am, I kind of start looking around in his room and there's lots of bottles and half empty bottles in there. And I wish I could tell you that I... Um, immediately had an intervention with him and we sat down and did the responsible thing and, and talked, but I did not do that. Because for about three or four years I had not gone to Al-Anon. I decided I probably didn't need to go. Um, my sponsor had retired and moved away. Uh, I still had friends in the program. I still went to a couple things, you know, occasionally, you know, a meeting if a friend would call or maybe something special. But um, I read my pages, I, I lived the program in my mind, <laughs> believing that was good, you know. But I walked out of that kid's room and I shut the door because I did not want to know anything that was going on in there. I did not want anything robbing me of the joy and happiness and fun that was going on in and denial of reality can be safe place to be because if you're not looking at it you don't have to deal with it and I didn't want to deal with it but it's a progressive disease 
and grades began to fail and principals began to call and we decided maybe a little therapy on the side wouldn't hurt and one night I was sitting at the kitchen kind of back here in the dark as I was going to work on third shift drinking a cup of coffee, smoking a cigarette and up here's the front door and he comes in the front door and walks down that hallway to go to his bedroom about 50 and I watched him walk in and he kind of wobbled and bounced off this wall and then he kind of wobbled and bounced off that wall and then he kind of wobbled and bounced off that wall and went into and the thought crossed my mind if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and I thought oh my god that's a duck <laughs> beginning to feel like typhoid Mary. You know, I don't have the disease. I'm just spreading the disease. You know, I am, I, I had divorced it. I had left it. I didn't want to deal with it anymore. And I am growing one in the back bedroom. <laughs> I thought I've got to go back to some meetings because that's the only thing I knew to do. You know, that's, that's what you do when you have alcoholism in your home. That's what I did. That's what I did. I went to Al-Anon. So I went back to Al-Anon. And you know, there weren't a whole lot of familiar faces there still, but there were, there were familiar faces there. Hi, how are you? Come on in, sit down. Um, and when I first started coming back, you know, I, I, I felt, listen, because I knew how to work my program dealing with an alcoholic husband. Dealing with an alcoholic child is a whole nother. I wanted to work my program just like I had with this alcoholic husband, that you are responsible for your own things and, you know, I'm not going to get into your business and blah, 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 blah. But when you have a child that is an alcoholic and they are uh, acquiring damages, court fees, wrecking cars, getting arrested, the police come to you. I am responsible, which I don't want to be. I am responsible for this kid, this son. So, I wish I could tell you that I immediately walked in and picked another sponsor, but I didn't. I waited a couple years until I was really miserable and looked around because, you know, a lot of those people that were at the meeting still, uh, there was a reason I didn't use them as a sponsor before. I didn't really like them then, so I wasn't going to, you know, use them now. But there was this lady that had come in the interim, had moved from a different uh, area, inter Luis. Um, who I asked to be my Al-Anon sponsor because uh, to be without an Al-Anon sponsor in any type of leadership is arrogant and well enough to do it without one, but I did not. So I asked Louise to help me. And <laughs> God love Max. You know, he had these two cute little obedient daughters that had never gotten into problem and trouble and you know he had never had the police come to his home <laughs> and I said my god you know what do you do what do you do when the police come to your house well I could tell you what Max did you know he would lean over at me and he'd pat me on the knee and he'd say I'll be right here honey when you come back <laughs> 
he'd go to the bedroom, you know. So I'd go handle whatever it was. Police came to our house. One time, it was Halloween, and you know how kids corn cars, you know. Well, Cheyenne decided he was going to corn cars with this friend of his. Unfortunately, they forgot to take it off the cob. <laughs> And this lady comes to my house furious. Well, no. First the policeman comes to the house furious that Cheyenne has been caught corning this car and denting up these cars. And then the lady comes to our house upset and, and I had to pay damages. And you know how it is. It's just the way it goes. Um, and in those years, uh, <laughs> my son was a fisticuff kind of kid. He never bought the story. He was always getting into fights. Uh, that's just the way it was, you know, it's just the way it was. Ran with a rough crowd, and, and I just learned to roll with the flow. And uh, in those years, I had two kind of knocks on my bedroom door. You know, I'd be in bed sleeping, and I'd hear this knock on the door, and it's like, Mom, I need you. Uh, this means that he's usually bleeding from somewhere. He's been in a fight. I need to get my little bag with scary strips. I had a whole little kit, you know, cyan bag, you know, that had scary strips and gauze and, you know, uh, normal saline to flush out your eyes if you had mace in it. And, you know, I'd just go take care of whatever it was that was going on with him, you know, and go back to bed. And then there was a second kind of knock on my door. And it's like, Mom. I need you. You better get dressed. This means there's a police officer in your living room. I'll be right here, honey, when you come back. <laughs> he detaches so well. Anyway, and we went through this in our, his high school years, you know. Um, and. I did everything that a parent is supposed to do. Well, maybe not everything, but I tried, you know. Um, I sent him to treatment twice. We involved the court system. We involved the probation system. We involved counselors. Uh, I, to this day, the smell of chalk dust and peanut butter just makes me nauseous because all I can think of is sitting in school, listening to what my son has done, you know, and oh, yeah, yeah, I don't even want to go. And we went through several teenage years like that, uh, just a challenge every day. And about the time he was 17, he literally crawled into my bedroom one night and he said, I'm so sick, I'm so sick, I'm so sick. And I took him to the emergency room. It takes him two days to figure out what's wrong with him. Now by the second time, second day, um, he's being taken care of and I went to work, like an al supposed to do. I went to work and uh, I come back up on the second day. He's on the pediatric floor, okay? And the nurse comes down. She says, Miss Smith, we want you to come down to the nurse's station. Uh, the doctor wants to speak to you. And it's like 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I says, now? Is he here? And she says, no, he said to call him when you got here. So I go down to the nurse's station, and I get on the line to this gastroenterologist, and he says, Mrs. Smith, I'm really hard, sorry to tell you this. He says, but we did lipase and amylase uh, levels on your son, and he has pancreas. Um, from alcoholism. Your son is an alcoholic. He was 17. And all he kept saying was, I'm so sorry. And I'm kind of babbling, you know, something of, well, you know, we see about we can get him into treatment some more and the alcoholism runs in memory and I, I'm really glad you talked to me and blah, 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 blah. And I hung up the phone and I go back down to his room and his girlfriend's sitting there beside him because now he's feeling better. They figured out what's wrong with him. They're pumping him full of antibiotics. 
And I said, I'll tell you what, I said, um, your girlfriend's here, and I said, um, I'm going to go ahead and go, and, and I'll be in to see you in the morning. He says, great, Mom, see you later, okay, bye. And I left that hospital room, and I go sit in the car, and I'm crying, and I'm sobbing, and I'm sobbing. Because when a doctor says it out loud, no matter what kind of fantasy I had going on in my head that he wasn't really an alcoholic, that this really was, I was just blowing this out of proportion, it no longer was that. This was real, died in the wool, alcoholism. So I drive to my friend's house at the program, and I'm beating on his door, you know, and pouring down rain, and he opens the door, and he says, my God, what's the matter? And I said, so he is an alcoholic. And he says, well, duh, Pat. <laughs> I said, I know, I know, I know. So after he gets released from the hospital, and we go home. Now, you know, my mind is turning, and I'm thinking, how many days is it until he turns and I no longer have to be the parent? Call me evil if you will. On my work calendar at work, it counted backward 365 every day until he turned 18. And I no longer had to be, you know, took care of all these things. So, he does turn 18 Christmas Day. <laughs> no. I bought, him the same, I bought him the same birthday card, I know, four years in a row. It was this really cute little card, and it had these little angels flying, playing little harps. And it says, when you were born, the angels came, the harps played, and a voice from heaven said, and you open it up, and it says, look out, Bill! <laughs> that was it. So when he was 18... I gave him the speech, you know, you can't stay here. The speech I've been given for years that he never paid attention to. I mean, you know, my kid was in and out of his bedroom window, I can't tell you how many times. I know I had neighbors that go, my God, that kid crawls in and out of there all the time. And, uh, but anyway, so I told him the speech. You're 18, you know, you cannot stay in this house and drink. You cannot drug. You cannot blah, 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 blah. And if you do these things, then you have to leave. Well, he made it about 21 days. And uh, I got a call one night from uh, a payphone in another town, and, and it was real, it was like 4 o'clock in the morning, and, and he said, Mom, I'm beat up real bad, and uh, I can't see to get home. And I said, yes, I can. I will come and get you. And I was getting ready and driving there to get him, and I knew in my heart as I was driving that this was going to be the last time I was going to do that I was going to because I'd prepped him, you know. I mean, I begin, began sentences, you know, the last year he was in the house was when you're 18 and you move out on your own. So he knew that this was going to happen if he had called. And he'd waited a long time to call me. The cuts were really swollen shut. And, and I got to the, picked him up and same thing when he got in the car. I didn't say anything. And we rode about three or four miles. And I said, you know, you can't live in our house anymore. And he said, yeah, I know so we drove home, and um, I said, I'll tell you what, I said, it is pretty in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning. I said, pack your face with ice and, you know, take some Tylenol and want you lay down for a little while, and in the morning you can call somebody to come and get you. Head okay. So in the morning he got up, and, you know, I fixed him breakfast because, you know, <laughs> I am an Al-Anon. I mean, I have to fix him breakfast. You can't send him out the door without it. So I fixed him breakfast, and he got up, and I said, you need to call somebody, and he called a friend, and they drove to the house, and he 
packed up his little stuff and he moved out the door and I walked him to the door and I hugged him and I kissed him and I, um, I love you, you know, I hope things work out for you and I shut the door and he drove away. And I looked over at my husband and he immediately changed the locks on the doors. We went to Lowe's. We pulled every single thing out of his bedroom. We pulled up the carpet. We took, we boxed up all of his stuff that was left. We rented a storage building um, in, a, in a row of storage buildings for three months, put a padlock on it, came back, laid, uh, washed the hardwood floors, put a rug down, put all new desk furniture in there uh, on the weekend, that weekend, that weekend. We did all of that. He comes back three or four days later just to pick up a few things and <laughs> he knocks on the door because, you know, he can't get in. <laughs> the door's are changed. And he walks in and he says, where's my bedroom? I said, oh, this is now the library. <laughs> I said, but here's the key to the storage building. It's paid for for three months. I said, no more. Now, there were people who said, you know, oh, that was really good, you know, that you did this tough love for him. And I thought, I didn't do that for him. I did that for me. Because if he had come back four or five days later and wanted to go to sleep in his bedroom, I would not have had the courage to say, no, you can't sleep in your bedroom if his bed has been in there. I safeguarded myself. I, I never stopped going to meetings again. I learned my lesson with that. I never stopped going again. Um, I became very, very involved locally, um, worked the steps with a passion. I really don't have a whole lot of time for you if you do not want to be serious about this program, if you do not work the steps, if you do not take it uh, to heart and treat it lightly, um, I'm not quite there for you. I, I'm not real good sponsor with newcomers. I have a tendency to frighten them. <laughs> I usually get sponsees that have already been through a sponsor or two that now, you know, come to me. So we went on and he had uh, his problems. He did what an alcoholic does best. And the caller ID at my house changed from Madison County Detention Center and Madison County Juvenile Center to Madison County Jail and finally to prison. Um, also within that period of time he did get married, he did have children, and I'm not saying that we did not have wonderful times as a family. In my particular home, what I have chosen to do, and this is an absolutely individual thing with Al-Anon's, but what I chose to do was if my kids were having a party and I was invited, I went. I spent uh, times with my son uh, that I do not regret that were fun times. And my husband and I just knew when to leave. You know, when thing when the drinking got when he drank too much or when the party turned, you know, that that page where, you know, it just kinda turns, we'd either we'd leave, we say, Well, you know, gotta go, gotta go. But I chose to do that. I chose Holy Week two thousand and seven. He had been running from the police for about six months. He had gotten out of prison and been given work release and because it's cunning and baffling and powerful and it just sucked him right back in. He had, And then he just sucked back in. And he chose not to go back. On uh, Thursday, 
I had a message on my machine from his then ex-wife. I just need to know if you've heard from Cheyenne, if he's alive or dead. I need to know what to tell the kids. He called me last night. He was really loaded, and I just wanted to know if he was And that was a message on my machine. So I called my oldest son, and I said, uh, do you know what's going on? And he said, yeah, Mom, yeah, I do. And he proceeded to tell me more than I want. And I said, I don't want to hear any more. And I hung up the phone, and it was Good Friday. And I looked at my husband, and I said, you know, I need a little time. I need to go down to talk to God. My, my favorite time to talk to God is uh, when there's nobody else there to go to church and when there's nobody else there. I feel like he can pay full attention to me, that he's not distracted <laughs> by anything else that's going on. So I went to St. Mary's and I sat there and, and I, I went back home and about two hours. I walked in the house and my husband said, you know, there's a message on the machine. And I said, you know, I, I really can't hear it right now. I just spent the last two hours trying to get serenity in my heart and let's go out to dinner and I'll... So when we came back home, um, he would call me that night. And I bet the very last time I ever spoke to my son, he was very drunk. And I wish I had been like Kate and said, it's been lovely talking to you um, and I love you and I'll talk. I did say I love you, but I cannot talk to you. No. Um, <clears throat> five days later, a little after midnight, I got a call from my oldest boy. And I know that uh, but alcoholism got him in that garage. Because I know that he was awakening every day to the hideous spore horseman of terror and bewilderment and frustration and despair, how to get back from that. Because I, I was real fortunate that I, I work in this office, like I say, with this great guy. Because I tried to go back to work in about 10. You know, when you're a nurse, you can't come to the game um, not prepared. You can make mistakes. And I tried to do that for a few days, and finally the people at work said, uh, go home. So I went home. And that summer, I uh, I learned all over again for alcohol, and our lives are unmanageable. And it seems like every meeting I went to that summer, for the first couple months, was on step one, step one, step one, step one. And I went to a lot of open AA meetings, more than I had been to in many, many years, because suddenly I wanted to hear from alcoholics. I wanted to hear from somebody who knew what alcoholism was and understood. And I heard a lead that summer. A good friend of mine uh, spoke at an anniversary dinner and, and uh, he said from the podium at the end of his lead, jokingly, you know, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm back to step one, and if anybody knows the secret to step one, let me know after the meeting, and, you know, we'll talk to you. And that went through me like a knife. I mean, that went through me like someone's hand on my heart. And I talked to him a few days later, and I put my arms around him, and I was, you really don't want to. You are so powerless, so very powerless, and your life is so It's up single thing you have. And I was so close to insanity, so close 
I mean, I sat on my back porch for hours and days, and I could remember just standing and being there like on the abyss. You see it out there, you know, and, and making a decision to turn around and that that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. There were some gifts from that summer, real gifts that I got. And one of them was meditation. <laughs> I thought I knew how to meditate. <laughs> no, not even close. <laughs> when you can sit on your porch, and that summer it was gorgeous. It was sunny every single day. We had no rain. I know the farmers were pissed, but hey, it was my gift from God. I couldn't have handled rain. It was sunny every day. I sat back there. And when you can spend the entire day on one sentence, and get so close that you feel him. You hear him. That was my 11th step. I couldn't share it last night at the step meeting um, about the 11th step because it's so precious to me in so many ways. Although, and I have tried many different ways of meditation. I mean, I've done everything from the puppy pillow under my butt, you know, and, you know, music and the whole bit. But truly, the very best meditation that I know is breathe in. God, breathe out, crap. <laughs> so easy, so simple. It works. I don't know how to tell you. Just breathe in, God, breathe out, crap. Okay. It's been a long, long journey um, from that summer. It seems like longer than it has been. Um, I love this program. I really do. Um, I've, I give... Uh, I shouldn't say I give. I invite people to my house once a year for a 12-step workshops. Usually I invite about uh, 15 people and leave it up to God, and I usually almost always get 12, how that works. This year we had 13, lucky 13, but I usually get 12 um, because I want to hear new things. I firmly, firmly believe in the sentence in our literature that says study of these steps is essential to progress in the Al-Anon program. And I believe that. If you're not studying them, you're going backwards. So um, I love to watch newcomers. Um, I really wish I could say that, you know, I did all of, do all of this perfect all the time. I do not. Um, I still go to meetings because I need them. Uh, I still share because I need them. Um, and I got one more thing and then I'm setting up. Um, I had a situation, you know, there's always something that happens, either coming or going when you're going to tell your story someplace that you think, you know, I can't tell this, but I'm going to. <laughs> um, I was at a meeting, a home group, about three weeks ago, and there was a woman there that was just going on and on and on and on. And I mean, she'd been around two, week, uh, two years, okay. And you know how it is. When you've been in program for a while and you've given someone the knowledge and the glory of your wisdom and they don't get it, you know. <laughs> I don't know about you, but it pisses me off, you know. I'm thinking, come on, you've been here long enough. Snap out of it, you know. Get this. 
she was going into this long dissertation about how her well, her kids had snuck a little drink out to the garage, and she was really upset. And then she went down, and her husband was going to talk to him, but they didn't do it right, so she had to go tell everything. And then she was really mad at her husband, that, 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 that. And I thought, don't say anything. Just keep your mouth shut. This is not your business. Oh, smile, 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 smile. And then <laughs> I passed at the meeting, and then after the meeting, of course, you say, keep coming back. <laughs> Like they talked about earlier. Who said that? Oh, God, it's so true. Keep coming back. And she looked at me and she says, well, you just don't understand. Now, let me tell you something, girlfriends. <laughs> That's on my last nerve when somebody tells me about kids that I don't understand how wrong you are. And I said, I beg your pardon. And she said, uh, she started in again about her husband. And I said, what is your point? She stood back and I says, when you're ready to hear it, I'm ready to tell you. You know, that's something else I can't really remember what I said. I was so mad. So left to go home, and I'm riding home from the meeting with friends because, you know, we always have the meeting on the way to the meeting and then on the way back from the meeting. I know we do. There's like two or three of us that ride together, and I'm just, I'm livid. I am just livid. I am just so pissed that this person doesn't get it, and how can they be so stupid, and blah, 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 blah. And in the middle of this rant of mine, I'm thinking, and I know I'm going to have to freaking make a mess of this person for saying this. <laughs> I know what I'm saying and I'm going to have to make a mess of this woman, but right now this feels so good to say yell, and if I'm going to have to make a mess anyway, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> because I am a firm believer that, you know, feel the feelings. <laughs> problem-solving. My responses of people who know me have heard these so many times they're sick of hearing it. But, you know, first thing is feel the feeling, okay? The second thing about problem-solving is what's the problem? Because a lot of times what the problem is is not really what the problem is. A lot of times the problem is however I'm reacting to whatever. And if the problem begins with somebody else's name, it is not my problem, okay? Then, uh, okay, you got the problem, what are your available options? Okay. My husband and I have used this for 20 years. What are your available options? We've done it from everything from deciding whether or not we're going to set my son out the door to buying a water heater in Lowe's. We walk over to the side, excuse me, what are our available options? You know, we... <laughs> We have, one of us has been in the tub and the other one sitting on the bathroom floor going, we'll write them down. Because it feels so wonderful to write the options. Even if one of the options, write down everything, even if you're not going to do it. It's so great. You know, option number one, we're going to get that mother and we're going to shoot it. <laughs> but it feels so good to mark it off. No, we won't do that. Okay? It feels so good to mark it off. All right. Then these next two are straight from Blanche, okay? But she said this in some lead somewhere that I love. She said, what's in my own best interest? When you're working in a relationship and a couple, I didn't go to the relationship seminar uh, meeting this afternoon, so if you've heard this, I'm sorry. What's in our own best interest? What's in my own best interest? That's real important. What's in my own best interest? Number four, what's going to enable me to like myself later? Because sometimes things that sound real good right now don't sound so pretty good, you know, in a couple months when you're paying the consequences of whatever it is you're doing. Okay. 
Okay, you got it down? You know what you're going to decide? Pray about it. Pray about it overnight, usually. Okay, sometimes you can do things quick, but not usually. Pray about it overnight. Make a decision and do it, and then let go. Real simple. I mean, I use the same thing with everything and everything. Okay. So I get home, I'm pissed at this girl, like, you know, blah, 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 blah. Two days later, I'm thinking, okay, okay. You know, I sleep on it overnight, I work the next day, Wednesday I sleep on it again. Mm -hmm. Now it really feels scummy and awful and horrible, you know, and oh my God, i got to make amends to this. But I think I'm going to get up and have a cup of coffee, and I'm going to do my meditation, and I'm going to look at my books, and then I'm going to call this girl, because I do have her number, and I'm going to apologize for being a shit. So I drink my coffee, and I open up my book, and I think, I'm getting to it, God, I'm getting to it, God. And I opened up this little meditation book I had for this particular day, and at the top of the page it says, Making Amends. <laughs> I literally laughed out loud on my couch. I said, oh, I'm getting to it, I'm getting to it, I'm getting to it. I want to read this page and a couple more. <laughs> so I read a couple more pages, and about the time I get to the third meditation book, I realize that that's not the right day. I'm a day... I'm a day too early. I thought, great. I'll look back on the other book where it said making amends, and really that's really not today's page. I look back on the, on the page before that one, and it says getting ready to make amends. Okay. So I call this girl because I'm thinking this girl has no direction. She probably doesn't have a sponsor, and I'm just. But I I got to at least apologize to her. So I call her up and I say I'm really sorry. I, I, I spoke uh, angrily at you the other night at the meeting, and I really had no business doing that, and, and I'm really, truly sorry that I said that. I, I apologize. And she says, I'm so glad you called because I thought what you, about you were saying, and you were so right, and I, I wanted to ask you if you'd be my sponsor. <laughs> God has a funny little sense of humor, doesn't he? <laughs> well, of course, you know, it's like, okay. I said, well, uh, and I mean, I want to be a, this girl's sponsor about like I want to take an enema, you know. It's like, <laughs> well, okay. I'll be your temporary sponsor, and we'll see how it goes. We'll just work together. How will that be? That'll be just fine. Mm, yeah. uh, <laughs> so, you know, God gives back to me. What, when I give him directions and think and angry, he says, I'll teach you. You know, I'll teach you. I'll show you how, what you're supposed to be doing. I love this program. I know I've probably gone a little over. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much for letting me share. Thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay.